and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach, and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to episode 47 of Collective Wisdom, which marks the anniversary of the launch back in December 2020. I can still remember the feelings of apprehension as I put the very first episode out there, and it feels so good now to be able to look back and reflect on just how consistently showing up and practicing can make something so much better. I already knew at the time the power of stories to connect us on an emotional level, but what I've discovered is that there's a huge difference between knowing something to be true and actually experiencing it. So this is a perfect opportunity to thank each and every one of my guests for showing up so graciously and trusting me with their stories. It's been a truly humbling experience to spend time with them. And I've been reminded time and time again, just how much we can learn from others if we take the time to sit down and listen. It's also a chance to thank you for joining me and for all the really kind messages of support and encouragement I've received over the past year. They really have fueled me and knowing that other people are enjoying listening to it as much as I'm enjoying recording each episode is a real bonus for me. And I don't think this week's guest will be an exception. Fiona Mattesini is a journalist and accomplished writer, and she and I share a passion for all things podcasting. She's also been really good at following her intuition over the years, and as a result, has a really interesting and exciting career path that's given her a chance to truly explore her creativity one adventure at a time. But what I think Fiona helps highlight more than anything is a universal truth that essentially life is all about the relationships that you experience along the way. And we dig into how important that is and how kindness and empathy plays a part in building those relationships and making them so much stronger. Joining me today is Fiona Mattesini. Fiona is a writer and podcaster based in the UK. Her work ranges from ghostwriting all kinds of scripts and speeches through to helping corporate brands, including the one my husband Sim works for, find their perfect tone of voice. Fiona trained as a journalist and began her career in music television. She then spent over 10 years working in radio. In 2010, she was taken under the wing of Jamie Oliver's agent and published a cookery book, 25 Foods Kids Hate and How to Get Them Eating 24, based on her experience of getting her own children to eat their vegetables. Fiona then followed this new foodie path into opening an award-winning restaurant and dipping her toes into the entrepreneurial life. She sold the restaurant and went back to her roots as a writer, setting up a podcast production company a few years later. She and I first met when she came over to our house to interview Sim for an in-house podcast they were producing, and we got chatting over lunch. She has a natural way of forming an instant rapport with my three teens, and perhaps that's because she has three teenagers of her own. 
a daughter aged 17 and boy-girl twins aged 16, or perhaps it's because her days in music TV and radio give her not only an insanely good music knowledge, but a genuine interest in other people. But I think it was more because even though we'd only just met, we ended up talking about really fun stuff like tarot cards and discovered that not only is she psychic, but she has a capacity to see ghosts. We didn't even get onto the fact that she's had lunch with the Spice Girls not once but twice, but I'm hoping we'll get a chance to dig into that today. So Fiona, a warm, warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you so much, Kat. It's really fascinating to hear your own life story condensed so beautifully, by the way, into a, a 60 second explainer. So yeah, thanks very much for having me. So let's cut straight to the chase and, you know, start start up again where we left off really with, with this, the story behind the ghosts. Yeah, no problem. And actually, this is a bit of a weird one for me to talk about really, because I, I really like logic and facts and I don't know how to explain all of this and and there is a slight semantical issue in the sense that I don't know what language to use when trying to explain it all yeah. um, so I hope that your listeners can be forgiving if the words that I use sound a little bit I don't know, woo or, or excessive. Um, so there, yeah, there are two things really. One is um, that I am what some people would call psychic and others might call intuitive. And I'll share perhaps quite a good story on that one in a moment. But um, yeah, I, to coin a phrase, I, I see dead people. And the first time I saw, and, and again, who knows, is this a dead person? Is this my mind playing tricks? I'm not drawing any assumptions here. And that's why I say, I don't know what language to use. And the first time, I saw um, a dead person. I was in my early 20s and my friend Nick had died and I was alone in my flat in London and I woke up in the early hours and um, he was sitting on my bed and it wasn't a dream. I was definitely awake and it was sort of fully 3D. You know, he was a fully formed body that I could see was breathing and I saw his breath and I, you know, I could touch him. I didn't touch him, but I, you know, he was just there smiling and then he disappeared. And I've had quite a few of those where, gosh, I, yeah, I either hear people or I see people. And um, I had a situation where I was looking at photos of my nan and um, I instantly felt her presence. And she used to, this is a weird one, actually. She used to smoke and, and this sounds very odd, but the room filled with this a really intense smell of cigarettes, and but it was really strong. And then the door closed by itself. And I'm incredibly sensitive to buildings, so I can sense when um, I think something bad has happened. Actually, that only happened last month in Cornwall. And um, but also, I sense and this is possibly more interesting actually for people to listen to. I sense when things are going to happen, so it's really not unusual for me to know when someone is, um, for example, ill or pregnant or whatever. And one day. Um, they're maybe not the best examples, but anyway, one day a friend said to me, oh, you should go to this spiritual group that meets up in Langport, um, which is a town near me. And I went along and it was led by this real sort of wizardess type character who wore lots of purple. And we, anyway, she said, look, all of you pair up and, and, and just practice doing psychic readings on each other. And she said, you know, just trust the process. And I thought oh, this is going to be really embarrassing for all of us. And I actually wasn't very comfortable there at all, but I went along with it. And um, it was a complete stranger in front of me, a woman. And instantly things began dropping into my head, but really specific detail. Like um, I remember saying to your dad's got a heart condition, um, but the surgery has been postponed until next March and you're really worried. And 
um, you're a teacher and you're thinking of changing your career. And I remember saying, oh, when you were in the car last week and you played that Robbie Williams song, your grandmother was sitting next to you in, in, in spirit and all of these things. And she was in floods of tears going, yes, yes, yes. And, every, oh, and I noticed everyone had stopped and they, was, they were just staring at all of us. And I really spooked myself and I left and I never went back. So what, I, sort of, I mean, did, did the woman who was leading the group, because I mean, I... I think people can be a bit cynical about these things, especially if they haven't experienced anything yeah. like that themselves. But I think there's so much about the metaphysical world that we we just don't understand. And it's sometimes it's just because we can't explain it. We want to yeah. deny it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, for, for me, there's so much wrapped up in it. I mean, I think it's partly the fact that I, as a person, I'm always very keen to come across as credible. Mm. unbelievable and so whenever i've and this is part there are several reasons why i don't really talk about this and it's it's quite funny for me that this is where we're kicking off the podcast because i don't often talk about it and and perhaps you're right there are some people that would go to a group like that because they want they almost want to have this this thing and i was and i am sort of the opposite i mean i was raised a catholic and i have friends who are very committed christians and so there's an awful lot of dialogue around the fact that this is wrong um so i'm very conflicted there i'm also conflicted because like i said i enjoy logic and facts and i can't explain this and yeah. And, and yeah and, and because i don't want to come across as that kind of person you know I mean I live quite close to Devon and um don't know whether you know the town Totnes but it's full of those kinds of people that again right. do, you know, oh, I do you know what I mean that. it's like yeah, I don't yeah. want to be seen as that kind of a person so I don't and also it's a bit weird it's a bit odd but Does it yeah. ever frighten you no 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 and 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 you would think it would the people the dead people you would think it would there was only one chance actually I used to live in a really old um in fact, this cottage is really old. I live in, I love old houses, but there was one particularly old um, thatch cottage that uh, there was a man that used to come and visit. And I just knew he wasn't a particularly nice person. But even, you th you know, you'd think I'd move, right? But no, <laughs> you would think that would be enough. But I think my son might have it. And I haven't even, this is, I haven't even spoken to him about this, but when he was younger, he used to hear and see things and tell me about them. And I just didn't even raise it. And that's very, unusual for me as a parent because actually I am that very classic you know modern day parent who let's just talk about everything and, and I, I I don't really talk about it but it yet it doesn't scare me at all but yeah it's, it, it it's makes a strange sense thing to me, you know the way children have sort of a heightened sense of imagination and they have a heightened sense of play and possibility that if they have those gifts they're probably more acute when they're younger and then there's this sort of whole rationalizing it and denying it and just ignoring it and perhaps that's why there's less people that actually arrive at adulthood and still have those kind of powers or or i don't know what you call them talent yeah i mean i mean also i mean i'm i'm quite whimsical and i'm i'm very very i'm very introspective i this sounds a little bit slightly nuts but one of my favorite hobbies and again i can't think of the right word to describe this but i love to daydream i'm one of those people who daydreams like an awful lot and i as part of that i tend to concoct fantasies in my head about where my life could go or you know imaginary made up conversations or, or fictional versions of myself i do that a lot. i play out roles an awful lot in my head 
uh, I think I'm quite delusional, actually, because I do this, I think it's one of my coping mechanisms for life. And I have these sort of greatest hits fantasies that I play out an awful lot. And I live in my head a huge amount. And I know we're going to move on to career stuff, but I think that's partly why I've always moved away from office life, corporate life, yeah. per se, because I, I quite, I, I need to be in my own head. I need to be left alone to think. And, um, you know, getting a dog for us was great because when I go out and walks, so that's my time to sort of play out these things. So I, I, I am a little bit whimsical. Um, so and I've got no idea whether that's got anything to do with it whatsoever. But no, but yeah. it's, it's fascinating to me because I mean, that's all that also, I mean, those, those talents that that sort of ability to imagine yourself into different scenarios and roles that must play a huge part in the sort of creative writing element of what you do. Y yes. I mean, people, People that know me quite well, people who are close to me, I mean, it's people on the outside, I hope will say I'm a good writer and I have been told I'm a good writer and I do think I'm a good writer. I think I could improve and it's definitely my first love, my passion. But if I had to say what my real magic skill was, I think it's creativity. And that's a quite a big word and there's lots of things that can fall under that word. But for me, I am, and it's hard to say this without sounding like a complete arsehole, to be honest with you. So I'm just going to say it and then <laughs> just, please anyway. be, just please be aware that I'm aware of how I sound when I say this. But I'm one of those people who creates all the time. And I mean, I think of ideas all the time. It's a daily thing for me. So it's it's when I'm out and about or when I'm alone or I love being in the car. Like if, if I'm told, oh, can you just, you know, pop to Tesco's or pick up the kids? My first thing is good. I get to be in the car and think about that thing yeah, I was yeah, thinking yeah. about and, and dream it all out and, and see it all out. That's that's very, that's a daily thing for me. And, you know, I'll give you one example. Um, many years ago, I was walking with my ex-husband and I described Satnav. And I'm convinced that I've, I've, I've invented Satnav, by the way, but I just never got the credit. And then, <laughs> And this, and this is my life is full of these stories of like, I thought of that first. And, and, and you know, and I described it in, in huge detail and, and he went, see, that's great. And I went, yeah, yeah, I know. And then I just leave it and then I don't do things with it. And so my life is a lot of the time I have these big fears that the book I'm thinking of or the, the thing I've invented will get invented elsewhere. In fact, there's yeah. one book. There's one book I've written that Paul says to me, "Fee, you've got to push it out there because it's quite a unique little idea." He went because if that, he said, you'll be unbearable if if that gets published by somebody else. But no, I do. You know, my my yes, writing is my thing. But actually, I think more than my thing, it's ideas. That's come through so much. I mean, even in the work you do, you know, one of the reasons I was so keen to have you on the show is because. I love talking to people who have really built a kind of, you know, what we describe as a portfolio career or a squiggly career where one thing leads to another. But it's only when you look back and you start to connect all the dots, you know, you worked in TV and then radio, including actually that was really interesting that you were the traffic reporter for Chris Evans. on. So you were really successful in that that sort of um hemisphere if you like and then and then a cookery book option comes up and you follow that intuition yeah. or that leads so has that always been i mean is that part of the creativity that that process of not wanting to not explore some of these ideas um yeah i don't know i mean i 
I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I try really hard not to ask young people that question because it's such a loaded question. And in fact, funnily enough, last week I was rewatching one of my favorite TED Talks from um, Emily Wapnick, who coined this brilliant phrase, multi-potentialites, which is pretty much what you're saying uh, with uh, portfolio careers. Yeah. And it describes people who have multiple interests and therefore pursue multiple careers and jobs over one lifetime. And, and all of this completely describes my career and, and really resonates. And actually, for a long time, there was a lot of shame attached to that because it looked like you were job hopping all the time. And of course you are, yeah. really. Um, but actually, it's, you know, there are um, many, many people, and I'm sure, you know, Kat, you're one of them too, where, where exactly you're sort of following your nose, you're following your intuition, you're following opportunities. And when you... <laughs> there's a there's a huge part of me that thinks gosh we're on this earth for such a short length of time or maybe after my last comments that goes we're not I don't know but let's make the most of it you know I'm, I'm very much one of those people who I'm very very driven yes uh, so you're still it, that's the thing you've still got that ambition and that yeah. and and that real sort of I, I I never feel that you learn anything and it's completely wasted you know that actually what I mean about connecting the dots retrospectively is one thing then you can bring those skills into another area, you know, it might be a different discipline, but you're still building generally on that sort of creative theme on putting those ideas into action, in, you know, in, in different ways. Yeah, although, I mean, that might be quite a useful seg into into the restaurant, which is yeah, the, cha so the challenge, the challenge I've chosen, actually, because it turns out, well, I can I can tell you about the restaurant because um, that that was absolutely a challenge for, for me. So let me let me think. So let's backtrack to just how did you was it the cookery book that led to the, the restaurant or is it just a passion for food or how did it get kicked off in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it was the cookery book. Yeah, I'd, I'd ended up with three children under the age of two because when, yeah. when Darcy was about a year old, I fell pregnant. Well, I thought um, that was going to be your challenge, full stop. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, gosh, that that absolutely, I mean, gosh, that was that was insane and uh, yeah. really, really tough. And largely because we had no support system. So it was me and these these three kids under the age of two. So, yeah, um, and I'd, I'd carried on doing bits and pieces of radio. And and so let me fast forward the story. And when the twins were about three or four, I had I um, my son began to get really fussy with his food and he started to refuse all, all of these sort of healthy homemade lunches and dinners and things I was making. And I found this really stressful and I started to create these little games um, with carrots and broccoli and peas, like, you know, let's brush our teeth with the broccoli or let's, you know, <laughs> the peas under your tongue or whatever it was. And I began to develop these recipes. And so, um, because bear in mind b before that, I really, you know, food wasn't a part of my life any more than is, you know, your average person, you know, you eat, that's it. I wasn't what I'd call a, you know, a right. foodie per se. So I began to develop these recipes and then friends began to pick up on what I was doing. And then one night driving home from a radio show, I had this sort of eureka moment where I thought, well, this should be a business. You know, um, I could set up these these sort of parent and child fun with food classes. And long story short, I did that. Um, and I really enjoyed the process of setting up a business. And, and these classes were a runaway success and they were going to be franchised out. And I had a bit of local press interest and then a really lovely TV producer called Alison Foster called me up out of the blue and said, I've seen what you're doing and it's amazing and we want to do a TV show about this. So I did a screen test and the show didn't get picked up, but Alison was a real sort of advocate and champion for what I was doing. And she said, I'm going to introduce you to Bora Garson, um, Jamie Oliver's agent. Wow. So yeah, so that happened. And then Bora took me on and she said, you need a book deal. Have you written 
a book? Have you written this all down? And I said, yes, of course, um, which I hadn't. No, I'm so just she's, to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what happened. So she said, send me a synopsis in the first two chapters. So then that was that weekend, spending, you know, a frantic weekend writing up a book which up until that point hadn't existed and Bora pitched out and we got I think three offers and it was a sort of real Carrie Bradshaw moment for me because I was being taken out for lunch and schmoozed by all of these publishers and um so that was that was amazing and and um and yeah so the the book did really really well and and that kind of started my my love affair with with food and and actually my ability to cook because again before the kids I really you know it was I really couldn't cook that much at all Um, did you have an imposter rearing at that point though it's like wait a minute because Jamie Oliver's Jamie Oliver and I'm trying to sort of work with with his agent but maybe I'm not feeling like I'm I'm really I should be wearing these shoes well you'd think right I mean I I think I was so happy to be in in that stable of such huge names and accomplished writers and chefs and and it wasn't she she represents other people as well so I I was I was so happy and I'd always wanted to actually be a writer so the fact that I was you know there as I said be being with publishers and and um taking my pick I just I was I was so thrilled but looking back now I don't think I had much business being around some of these incredible chefs who 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 um took it all very seriously not that I didn't but you know it, it was their careers and I'd sort of jumped into this. And also, let's be honest, kids' food is very different. The kind of kids' food that I was creating, at least, was very, very different to these beautiful um, meals and therefore books that other people were created. But I, I suppose, again, this this sort of this sort of leads us to the challenge because I, I, I then sort of fell in love with, with food and the food industry. And going back to what I was saying about my daydreaming and, and the things that I create in my head and these ideas that I sort of, you know, incubate and think about. But I realized that for about two years, I'd been dreaming up this restaurant and, and in quite a lot of detail, you know, I, I knew exactly what it would be called and I knew what the menu would be and I knew... Um, it, it triggered something in your subconscious almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I'd, I'd envisioned this thing and at some point I tell Paul and he said, well, look, just, you know, let's do it. And I was really scared because I knew I could cook, but I, I didn't know the process or the protocols around opening a food business. So I decided uh, to do one thing every single day that would move me along what I thought the process would be, mm-hmm. um, including finding this gorgeous old building that, of course, had no running water. Typical me, like, you know, why, why would I choose that? So, yeah, you can make it yeah. easy on yourself and yeah, find yeah, a building yeah. that- that had a kitchen already in it but um yeah, yeah. and um i took out like three naught percent credit cards to fund it and another long story short we we opened uh the tail end of i think august in 2016 in in somerset in castle Kerry. it's still there by the way because we sold it in 2018 and anyway up until the day of opening the the challenges were pretty easy for me to navigate as they were sort of largely either logistical which were hoops to jump through, like with the council or stuff or creative, which is, you know, that's my natural language. That's my skill set. So through my network, um, I'd been introduced to this incredible chef and restaurant consultant called Joe Draper. And he's worked in countless restaurants and been part of Hugh Verley Whittingstall's recipe development team. And he's overseen umpteen restaurant launches. I mean, he's just a real pro. And on the day of the opening, it was me in this teeny tiny kitchen, Paul um, as host and manager. And I think we had a couple of waitresses, plus we'd asked Joe to be there just as support for me. 
And because I'm quite media savvy, um, I had in parallel to all of this sort of told every local magazine, newspaper, radio station about this incredible new restaurant called Home and you should really come down for, for the launch day. It's going to be amazing. And I remember even Frank Barrett, the travel editor from the Mail on Sunday, came down. So, wow. um, so yeah, no pressure. Was, Oh, honestly, I mean, spoiler alert, there's a reason why restaurants often do what's called a soft launch. And I just didn't yeah. do that. I didn't know. So anyway, we opened, I just, it was just nuts. So we opened the doors and there was a queue of people outside, unlike anything else I'd ever anticipated, including, you know, friends and family, just everyone was there. And they poured into our little restaurant and very quickly the orders began flooding in. And Joe knew the language of chefs and of, and of professional kitchens. So he was like giving all, hey, chef, order on. And, you know, I was kind of dressed for a day at the beach. I wasn't even dressed properly. You know, I think I had an oh. apron on, but I was just not. It wasn't that I wasn't taking it seriously, but I didn't know what I didn't know, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So he was all like, check on chef, you know, one ketchup pepper with a gluten-free pasta, you know, one peanut soup, but without the chili oil and all this. Um, oh. There's a salsa very <laughs> feet. Yeah, yeah. And then and then and we did we didn't have a digital system and all of these little paper slips were um being written up and, and being put right in front of my nose, uh, you know, just on, on top of the uh, where the oven was. And again, I'm I'm an extremely sort of motivated and determined character, and it's just not in my nature to allow myself not to do well. Um but I'm also very disorganized, I'm untidy, I'm spontaneous and not always in a good way and I often fail to plan classic creative and, yeah and I right and I tend to wing it a fair bit and in, and in the course of about one hour I failed in a really visible tangible way and I think when you work in things like writing if you or anything else quote-unquote creative often you can hide your your failures sorry moving us yeah, I mean, yes, that's it. That's it. But this, there was no hiding from this. And, um, and, you know, cooking like that, it's, it's as much about timing and organization as it is about, um, you know, cooking and flavor and they're two of my worst things. So I really lost control and my mind began to spin, you know, when you're, I don't know whether you know this, um, when you're losing it and you're aware that you're losing it, but you just can't claw it back because you're panic, you're, you're in panic mode. Yeah. So you almost and, go into a sort of Gordon Ramsay's kitchen yeah, nightmare yeah, scenario yeah, yeah. and it's, it's was, spinning oh. out of control before it's actually got that far. And- yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would be the worst actually if you'd walked in. And, um, I mean, I'm ashamed to say this, but I, I remember, I, I mean, it's a bit of a haze, but I remember blinking back tears and, and looking back now, it feels like no big deal. But at the time, because I'd built this thing up, it felt yeah. awful. And I think what happened next was a real demonstration that what I'm telling you, this little anecdote could have actually quite easily gone in the kindness section of your podcast, because Paul could see that I was quietly losing control. But he couldn't do anything about it because he was too busy sort of, you know, making bloody oatmeal lattes for all the vegans who suddenly rocked up. Um, <laughs> the waitresses, you know, no one, no one else could see me because I didn't have my, 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 my back was to most people. I was like facing this oven. Um, but Joe was so perfect in his response. He looked at me and he said really quietly, he sort of grabbed my arm. He went, do you need me to take over? And he said it so gently and so respectfully towards me. And I felt so small. And I remember saying yes. Yeah. And he'd already told me that my kitchen wasn't fully prepped. And I'd sort of brushed it off with a joke. I was like, ah, I'll do the garlic, you know, you know, in real time. And of course, when you think about it, to peel a gar- garlic clove in my no. head, I was like, oh, I'll just do it. It takes a bloody long time just to take the damn 
the roots off. And then just like the real pro that he is, he swept in. And I kid you not, he had that kitchen on its feet within 20 minutes. And then just to show off, and Paul and I laugh about this now, he began making impromptu biscotti in one of the side ovens. He was like, yeah, and then I can do this. Yeah, and awesome. it was Thank just, God he was there, though. Oh, <laughs> I just tried to think. And after the last customers had left, Joe and I sat outside and he lit a cigarette, typical chef. And I asked for one too, even though I don't smoke. And he gave me the, one of the pep talks of my life. And I think what he said isn't so much important because a lot of it was chef talk and chef stuff, but an awful lot of it was to do with my attitude. Yeah. And, you know, sort of gung-ho, laissez-faire, like, ah, you know, I'll wing it. And he did it in a way that struck a balance between, you know, you need to hear this shit, stop fucking about and yeah. not making me feel more terrible about myself than I already did. And I think that's a real skill that's rare, particularly in catering where, you know, it's fraught with bully, horrible head chefs. Yeah, the and, whole shouting at people. Yeah, which, which is just crap. If and he so decided I, to deliver that lecture whilst you were sort of failing, oh, um, disaster. I, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I took his advice and within a couple of weeks I was coping alone and within a, a couple of months I was really comfortable in that kitchen. But it was such an exercise in being outside your comfort zone and, and just following up on a commitment and recognising that, you know, no one else is going to do this for me. And a real baptism of fire. So, so I guess I think this is the rule that so many creatives in so many different disciplines, it, it, with, without that discipline and structure nothing actually gets shipped, nothing actually gets mm. finished. And it's mm. it comes through in so many different ways. You know, it's not just, oh, I've got to have the ideas and I've got to um, drum up the, 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 the customers to come. It's, it's I've got to have the systems in place yes. to be able to yeah. serve them and to be able to bring those ideas to life. Yeah. yeah. Amazing yeah, really. story. So, so what happened though? I mean, you, you kept it for two years and you, and you just discovered it was far harder to run a restaurant than you'd anticipated? Or? Yeah. I mean, you, really, this is the theme, I think, of this podcast is me imagining, um, me having these 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 notions and ideas that actually aren't really rooted in reality. So I had imagined that I would run a rest. It was a lunchtime restaurant and breakfast. Run a restaurant during the day, and at night I would carry on with my journalism career. And I would also, by the way, be a mum, and I would also yeah. be a wife, and I'd see my friends. And blah, blah, blah. and of course that that didn't happen at all. But I genuinely had this this because I've always been very hardworking, and I've always been the kind of person to try and find that twenty fifth hour in the day. I thought, well, I'll do it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, and it didn't even occur to me that actually running a restaurant actually fee and, and also the, the business side of that, you know, the kind of the accounting side of that would be more than a full time job in itself. So I, yeah, I and thought doing the ordering and right? yeah, making sure you're ready for the next day. Oh, my God. <laughs> hamster in a wheel. Yeah. yeah. So um, we and, and if I'm being really honest, within a few um, months, if not weeks, Paul and I recognized that this was a bit of a nuts thing to take on um, because he, it was, he's actually a, a, a tour director and it was affecting, you know, the th and that's the thing that he loves. And so um, we were both a bit nuts. So essentially, and I missed the kids, you know, I wasn't seeing the kids as much yeah. and I, I just wasn't doing anything else for myself, you know. And it's so we, really hard to make restaurants financially viable. You work harder than you've ever worked in your life and yet you're actually making less money than if you we're probably writing or oh uh, yeah one day Paul broke down the numbers he went fee we're working for like two pounds fifty an hour yeah, like you know and yeah. that was and that wasn't enough to actually make me stop because it for me it was never really about the money anyway it was 
it was this vision. It, and I and I think a lot of the time with creative people, sometimes you just have to do the thing that, that is in your head, and then you look back and you think, okay, I, I did it. So I'm glad that I did it. Yeah. Um, but I I I wouldn't do it again. And I certainly have such respect for anyone that does it. And and um, oh, and me much- too, me too. Yeah. I, I we have friends who have opened um, a bar down in Dartmouth, and um, hey, Sarah. And um, yeah, seeing the behind the scenes, you know, and it's so part of the art of running a place like that is to make it seem easy and seamless. And, you know, that people don't see the hard work that goes into it. It it Mm. has to appear effortless. Yeah. And yet, you know, that it's like the swan sort of floating on the pond and legs are just sort of bubbling. But I can now see why. I remember talking to you and you said um, you were a big fan of Sophie Ellis Bexter's um, podcast, Spinning Plates. Mm. (laughs) I can now start to see why. It really appeals, you know, really resonates with you. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of not literally spinning plates, but just taking on a lot and yeah. making it work. But yeah. but I think there's also in that, I'm really intrigued to dig into the moment where you decide to let go. Cause I think for for people like this with portfolio careers, with with where you're not, you're maybe following a path that's not sort of tried and tested route, uh, the hardest thing can be to just say, this is enough. Yeah. And I, and I also think that speaking for myself, I tend not to let things go unless I've got the next thing to move on to, because I, I like to be busy. Mm. Um, one of my worst fears is being at home with nothing to do. Um, and I've always said that even if I was hugely wealthy, I, I would have to do something. I could never sort of sit around with handbags or shopping. Same, I can't, I can't, same, can't same. stand shopping. Yeah. I just, it's just, so yeah, so it is hard to let go. Um, but I'm again, it's nice how these are all joining up. Going back to the sort of ghosty, ghosty thing, I'm also very intuitive, and I know when the time is right. So the the right. time is absolutely right to, to and not to let feeling it go. a sense of failure or shame around. Gosh, you know that hasn't worked out. It's it's, it's almost saying, I did that. I've learned some lessons, and I can move on from it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's yeah. it, and and again, that comes from have from from embracing the fact that you're pursuing a portfolio career. So you yeah. think I did that? Is is it? I mean, it stands out a little bit in in the career trajectory for me because actually, it's a little bit of a diversion. Um, although I guess not if you consider the book. Um, but I I do much much less food writing um, and travel writing now than I than I did then. Mm. At the time I was doing on the back of the book, by the way, I should join up the, the dots a little bit. I was on the back of the book. I then began doing um, an awful lot of yeah food writing, uh, travel writing uh, for um, newspapers and magazines. So you so, kind of built a runway for you to sort of exit when you do want to sell the restaurant. It's OK, I've, I've already got something else in the pipeline that I can pull back on. Yeah, which is a nice way of putting it, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And um, and so I returned back to the journalism and and then and I think with the writing, it's very much been word of mouth and sort of, you know, pushing sort of pushing out an email to friends and colleagues and editors and saying, hey, you know, I'm coming back to doing this. And and that's when the writing, I guess the writing proper started, which was, you know, I mean, for me, day to day, it does vary quite a lot. Um, but I think one of the first things that I did after we sold the restaurant was I ghost wrote a presentation for a CEO in the music industry. And I remembered how much I loved that. So then it was, yeah. you know, that kind of brings us, you know, back up to date and, and full circle. And going back to something that you do instinctively and that is part of your sort of real core 
strengths, I think is is a really good place to go to from from something that you've had to close the door on. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Now you've mentioned, um, you know, that that ultimate act of kindness, which was not to sort of tear a strip off you in the middle of the the chaos, but wait until it was after, and, and even to be kind about delivering that lecture afterwards. I think you learn so much from you do learn so much from the things that haven't gone right that you failed. You know, we we talk about Elizabeth Day and, and I know I need to say thank you um, very kind, very publicly because it was an act of kindness that when I sent you a copy of the book that uh, enough that I've been working on with, with a group of uh, 16 other authors, you wrote one of the most incredibly generous reviews that we received and the, the whole crew were just, blown away by that so so that was another little act of kindness that brought us together but what stood out for you as a story when I asked you that question I think that was the toughest question by the way and I mean that in a lovely way because what a what a great thing to talk about kindness it's a underrated virtue oh you know if we're talking about ideas so you know the way people have bottled water and now we buy water well my thing is they will be bottling kindness because it's totally free and yeah. it gets you to a lot of places very quickly. It's, yeah. it's a currency that is totally, totally undervalued. And you heard that here first. You know, you're absolutely right. And and it's something we need to to practice as well and to get into the habit of, of, of doing. And, you know, it was a tough one. And I could have given you so many different answers. And like I said, Joe Draper, he was so kind to me. And I've, I've, I've never forgotten that. And I... Um, we haven't lost touch really because we're on Facebook, but we don't really talk day to day or month to month. So I'm going to send him a copy of this podcast. So he oh, knows that yeah, I, I really, great. yeah, I really mean it when I, when I, um, when I um, think about how wonderful he was. Um, but I, I think when I was thinking about this answer, I, I was very aware that I wanted to give you good content for your podcast. And rather than giving you an anecdote per se, I thought I would try and find something that's a bit more universal, because I'm sure this will resonate with lots of people. And, and Kat, I'll be sort of intrigued to hear your, your take on this. But I think one of the things that moves me the most um, is the kindness that exists within so many marriages and committed monogamous relationships. And you should actually preempt that um, some of what I'm, I'm about to say is it's definitely my original thinking, but it's also heavily borrowed from the writer and philosopher Alan de Botton, who mm. wrote a wonderful, heavily shared article in the New York Times um, called Why You'll Marry the Wrong Person. And really the gist of this piece is the fact that we place so much pressure on our marriages to be movie style perfect and we expect a lot from our partners. But the truth is, you know, marriage isn't like that. There are, you know, wonderful moments, but there's also an awful lot of paying the bills and admin and, you know, in our case, teenagers and flat tires and, you know, legs yeah. that don't get don't get waxed as often as perhaps they once did. And yet the kindness is in the fact that we still, all of us, we stay together in spite of the fact that we see each other you know, in these very private, Flaws messy, yeah, in these ways that we don't actually reveal to anybody else, only to our partners. And, you know, just using my marriage as an example, I feel permanently guilty that I'm incredibly messy. Like it's to the point of, <laughs> I'm quite slovenly actually, Kat. And, you know, I'd be horrified if you came over, like it would be awful. And Paul is so neat and tidy and I know it drives him nuts. And yet he's still so lovely to me. And yeah. and, I'm, and I'm also incredibly selfish with my time. So I really enjoy being alone to write and to be creative and only emerge from my office, you know, when I want to. 
Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I love him being nearby and the children that, you know, I love them being nearby so I can see them. Um, and he accommodates all of that. And it's the same in reverse. You know, when I, you know, I, I accommodate parts of him that are a complete pain in the ass that no one else, that he will show no one else. So I'm not saying, you know, he's the, yeah. the perfect one and I'm not, of course not. This is something I tell the kids a lot. I don't believe in the one. I don't believe in fate. I don't believe in soulmates. Um, I, little sort of diversion. Um, I love it when people challenge the sort of traditional wedding aesthetic because I think that the, the big white dress reinforces um, a bit of a princess complex that I think a lot of women I've noticed seem to have when they talk about wedding days and I I yeah. really bridle when 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 brides call it their big day because it instantly demotes that the the importance of or the value of any men involved so um so yeah, I don't believe in soulmates and, and that sounds really unromantic until you sort of deconstruct that and realize that what I'm saying is is that the the kindest and I think, therefore, the most romantic thing you can do is say to someone, actually, you're not perfect. And I could walk away from this, but I'm not perfect either. And I know that. And I'm choosing to stay in this relationship in spite of us both being imperfect. And 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 also, <laughs> I so I was married before and my, my ex-husband and I, we went into couples therapy as a sort of last ditch attempt to save the marriage and I should also say for the purposes of disclosure that the children know this and, and you know it's kind of yeah, it's so secret. yeah um and I recall sitting in the therapist's office for the very first session and I recall thinking um like looking at her and thinking oh you wait till you hear about him and you know how awful he's been and what I've had to put up with and you know and, and, and I did she say my- now I want everybody to start from an I statement <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was convinced that you know when she heard all of my stories that she'd go oh you know what a terrible guy oh. and she you know yeah 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 um but what therapy actually did for both of us and I'm very aware that I'm saying he he is my ex-husband so clearly something wasn't right but what it did was it really untangled um, a huge mess that had festered for so many years and and she very gently was able to shine a light on those parts of ourselves that we all you know we didn't want to acknowledge let alone you know yeah. um have it have it out in the open and that was really um transformative for me i mean it was really painful i think that was the most painful thing i've ever done emotionally that's that's such a, a vulnerable thing to say first of all fiona i mean that's so um yeah, it's so honest and it's so trusting um, to, to sort of say that out loud, because I think there's a lot of people who shy away from the, the flaws, the the bad stuff. You know, we just we reflect that that's our social media kind mm. of default, if you like. We, we share all the good stories, but we don't talk about yeah the days that things aren't quite so rosy. And what you're exploring is, I mean, I think any therapy does just that it's asking you to go inside yourself and and reflect on those flaws and how how you show up is a choice you know you don't always have to to be this perfect i loved what you were saying about being perfectly imperfect mm. acknowledging those flaws and then when you are in a relationship with someone else often it is about loving them flaws and all you know that you 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 can't Mm. if you set people up on a pedestal you're only going to set them up for a fall and equally you're not really acknowledging your own shortcomings yeah you're doing is seeing the the things that are going wrong in other people yeah and actually what's interesting is at the beginning of what you were just saying I think you mentioned songs or cultural references I can't remember how you worded it but actually one of the things that 
I have noticed, and, and as a little kind of like as a little aside, if if you were to ask me, not that you have asked me this, but if you were if you were to ask me um, what kind of a writer I'd love to be or, or what I would love to do or the um, fulfilled ambition, mm. one of the things I would love to do, by the way, is to be a song lyricist. If I that mm. I, either that or a, a staff writer on any show that um, Jesse Armstrong is a showrunner on, but that's a different story. But anyway, with <laughs> with with song with songs. If you listen to a lot of music um, today, and music is a huge, huge passion of mine, which also links into career because my career began at MTV, music television. Um, if you listen to a lot of songs today, and because I have three teenagers, I listen to all of their songs and we're constantly like, turn that crap off, you know, in a yeah. fun way. But a lot of the lyrics are on a very similar theme of, I'm so great. You're so lucky you've got me. How dare you do that? I'm the best. Da, da, da. Is that, it's very rare that you hear song lyrics and stories of actually I was wrong. And I think if, when we're in conflict, it's really, really hard to admit to being wrong. Like I hate it like anyone. And I always yeah, think compromise yeah. is so freaking, you know, overrated. And if you're, if you're not lucky enough to have had parents who raise you to be a little bit more self-aware or humble or reflective, you're actually relying on, you know, what you what you learn about marriage and relationships you're relying on a lot of these cultural reference points you know films and music and books and tv shows and and also you know well-meaning friends who say things like oh you know he doesn't deserve you and i don't like that line you know i just when friends say that and they're so well-meaning they don't really get, know the full context exactly because no. they don't know they actually don't know that actually i've been a complete arsehole as well and you know it's that it's that kind of thing so it takes an awful lot of self-awareness and bravery to be able to actually say to say to yourself no maybe you know where's where's my responsibility in this and and i do recall when i was being particularly obstinate in in therapy because i I may be giving the impression that I very quickly shifted, but I didn't. I was really, really resisting. And in the end, um, by the way, we left couples therapy. We went into individual, sorry, I should speak for myself. I went into individual therapy. And um, and I recall the psychotherapist um, quoting a beautiful line from Rumi, who um, is or was a poet back in, I think, the 13th century. Mm. And it said, out beyond our ideas of wrongdoing and right doing there's a field i'll meet you there yeah and i thought that was so beautiful this this notion of do you know what we're not going to agree on this let's let's meet here and it is um, it's about getting beyond your own ego because our yeah. ego wants to be right and and it, that's what it's for and and so we'll defend that sometimes to to the yeah to the the detriment of everybody around us to the yeah. detriment of the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's only when you can then start to explore your own I love that, that idea of taking responsibility that mm. really the only thing you can take responsibility for is your part in a relationship. Yeah. It, it's this, I just need to change this other person and then, and then mm. it'll all be fine. You know, that's often mm. where things break down. It's kind of, well, if you just weren't so X, Y, Z, then we'd all be better off. But yeah, actually, exactly. it's, well, I can take responsibility for how I show up. And then I think also acknowledging, as you said, you know, there isn't just one soulmate. I really do believe the grass is greener where you water it. Mm -hmm. um, but but there are times where you just have to admit that that if somebody is is so ego driven and you know relationships can go so badly wrong at that point that 
there is a point at which you need to say, okay, this is just not for me. And, and um, so I think clinging on to something when it's damaging to you is also, you know, that's, that's a, a role that therapists play that is so valuable is helping people see mm. the difference between you just being in this blame culture. And if, if only, you know, and, and, but then also acknowledging that there are times where for whatever reason, there is just too much conflict in a relationship for it to, mm. to survive, mm. you know, yeah. that's, it's healthier for both parties to sort of exit and, and move on. Um, mm. But no, such a powerful conversation because I know as part of my coach training, we, we do a whole section on relationships because, you know, relationships come into it all the time, you know, whatever you're coaching someone around, there's always their relationship with a spouse or a, a business partner or, as a parent so it's it's and it was so enlightening going through that process of looking at yourself before you even start to look at at the other people in in the relationship and and what what you can take responsibility for and take have agency over yeah and that's when you get to that place that Rumi describes which is beyond judgment but I think the other thing is I now understand that often anger can be a reaction to a fear and if you start to look at what's the fear that's behind the anger mm. it allows you to have a little bit more empathy for mm. what's going on you know if someone's really fearful of of yeah the whole relationship breaking up that can cause really angry default reactions but actually yeah. it's 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 because they're really worried that this is being threatened, you know. Yeah, and anger is often a surrogate for something else. And you're right, usually that's fear. Um, yeah. So it's incredibly interesting. And, um, in, in, yeah, the whole process for me was was really powerful and, and enlightening. It was so and I'm sure that as a, as a result of going through that process and feeling that sort of real awareness arrive, you know, the sort of penny drop moment, it makes you a better parent. It makes you, it makes your, your other relationships stronger. There's no question about it. Yeah, it does. It does. Because of course it informs all of your relationships mm. and um, yeah. And that does include your, your professional relationships. It does include all of it. So I'm always quite keen to, for example, in professional environments, if I think I've messed up or it's not right, I'm you know not afraid to hold my hands up and say, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I messed up and apologize. So I'm, I think yeah. I'm quite good at that. Yeah. And opening up to, and, and it is a dance, don't you think with, um, I, I mean, I'm certainly somebody who tends to try I err on the side of people pleasing, I avoid conflict. So it is always that, well, okay, where are my boundaries here? You know, and am I, am I just allowing people to sort of walk over me like a doormat, which is also not healthy in a relationship? Um, whether it's as a parent or in a, in a business relationship, you know, to always be the one backing down and saying, okay, we'll do it your way. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're feeling quite depleted. Yeah. And I think oftentimes life is a continuous process of um, little soft resets and, um, yeah, absolutely. you know, when you, yeah, often I don't see my boundaries. I've, I've let go of whatever boundaries I think I've set or I've overstepped them until it's too late. And I look over my shoulder and go, ah, oh, you know, I messed that up again, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll go, we'll go back. And, and uh, yeah, so it's all really, really interesting. And um, 
but it's interesting that you came to this from the place of song lyrics and so if you were going to do you have i mean i imagine if you let yourself just play with that idea there's going to be some amazing lyrics that just start to sort of pop into your head yeah i mean this is it and um it's it's one of those in, i mean i've worked i worked in the music industry and so I, I i sort of know the industry it's an industry i'm comfortable in um and around but having said that it's also i've i tend to pick highly competitive um work work streams from writing to um song lyrics um so let's let's see um and i and, I, and really you know song lyrics that's that's an, another way of talking about poetry which is what yeah. um yeah. it used to be isn't it right so um yeah so it's it's i'll be honest it's not something i'm actively pursuing but like i said if if i had to choose a, a, where my writing would go i would possibly choose that um if i could access that yeah. um, um or, or again script writing is kind of where my heart lays an awful lot at the moment i i love uh storytelling and well, I remember you put me onto succession, actually, <sighs> that conversation that we had over lunch, we were talking about, you know, what should we be watching? And uh, that's when I first started engaging with it, which I'm oh. very grateful for that recommendation. I I am obsessed. I mean, if you said to me, Fee, we're going to just pivot this podcast and talk about just succession. I like, <laughs> I'm just utterly obsessed. And, um, but it and is now great storytelling. Oh, it's just incredible. And I, you know, I, I obsessively, I, I, I confess I'm such a geek. I listen to podcasts about succession. I listen to podcasts that the writers, you know, the writers um, uh, do about succession or indeed about anything. Um, I'm completely obsessed. And when it comes to um, Mondays, when we watch it, the kids have to go upstairs and it has to be out. No one talk. It's coming on. Like, I'm so excited that I get to watch it this week. I, I will, I will dominate the podcast talking about succession. It. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but no, I mean, we we've sort of shifted from from um, music to succession, and yet I, as you know, I ask people to tell me a story about one piece of music, and I imagine it was quite hard for you to narrow it down to one sort of firm favorite that has a story behind it. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, it was, and I'm extremely grateful to be able to talk about music because it's a bit of a teenage passion that I've never really grown out of, and. Um, yeah, I love talking about music and, and not just music artists, actually, but just how how immersive I find music. So, um, for example, I, I love that feeling when after a concert, when everyone leaves sort of as strangers and they pile out onto the street. And yet you've all had this incredible, often euphoric shared experience. And, you know, for similar reasons, I actually get really cross when you watch a film or a TV series and someone not naming any names, Paul, turns it off before the closing credits and the music has, you know, when the music hasn't yet ended, because if I'm, if I'm, the bubble. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm committed, I'm like fully committed. And I feel like if a producer or whoever has, has chosen to put that piece of music, I'm listening to the end. I'm in the cinema watching to the very end and I'm really immersed in it. So, and I should also say, and there's not many things I do brag about, but I'm going to brag about this. I have an insanely good knowledge of eighties music, which is years and years of working in, in commercial radio and actually yeah. working in music tv and i went on bbc radio 2's pop master and i won so oh wow to... that yeah. is insanely good yeah, and, yeah. and so everybody wants you on their team in the in the pub quiz i can imagine yeah oh yes yeah 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 or at least they should do so that's yeah love 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 music um but anyway i'm so i'm grateful i get to talk about music thank you and i'm very grateful that i get to talk about this singer because i find his music and his storytelling 
deeply moving and he's one of those singers who feels like a brilliant secret but also one that you sort of want to share and I was reading an article the other day about him that said he's one of those artists that if you know you know so his name is Fergus O'Farrell and his band is called Interference he's from Cork in Ireland and you can really hear his Cork accent when he sings which I love and he's one of those singers that so many musicians and artists have name checked as an influence and he has he had a stunning talent for melody and and just really thoughtful composition of lyric and an almost magical live performance and the band never had real commercial success and that's often chalked up to the fact that Ferg had muscular dystrophy which basically attacks and breaks down the muscles wow. and he spent a lot of his life in a wheelchair and eventually he lost the ability to hold a guitar or sort of play the piano and it got to the point that he had to be carried on and off stage but he was utterly determined to carry on making his music it was like music was his life force and in fact I think I read somewhere that he used to strap a belt around his upper body to help his lungs and you know when his body was really deteriorating and I should also add if anyone's ever seen the film Once with Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Iglova who are also two um, favorite musicians uh, of mine they won an Oscar for best song and it's a terrific film Fergus's song Gold, I'm kind of interchanging him and his band, Interference's song Gold is featured in the film and you can see Fergus singing, actually singing the song. But I mean, it doesn't have a happy ending because Fergus died in 2016 and he was only in his late 40s. And and in fact, just a year or so before, Paul had emailed him to see if he would come and sing Gold Our Wedding. And Fergus was so lovely and sort of funny and, and gracious in, in saying, look, he, he tried, but his health was deteriorating. And he was a poet. He was he was a musician's musician. He was just a real artist in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful film director by the name of uh, Michael McCormack, who's just literally this month or last month released a documentary that brings Fergus's story to life and it's called Breaking Out so do look out for that because it's in there a lot yeah of wow that sounds yeah. amazing and 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 you know it's a, it's a real testament that actually songs and music do leave a legacy don't they oh, yeah 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 and so missed so missed and I and I nearly chose the song Gold because it's probably his most famous and most uh, commercially successful song but there's another one called Ceylon that I think I'll pick because I know that mm. you on the podcast you put links in and and on this particular song there's it's it's him singing it live and it's really beautiful so um yeah so it would be um Interference or Fergus O'Farrell and, and Ceylon Oh, well, that's a really welcome addition because I've never heard of Fergus and I've certainly never heard the music that I know of. I mean, it'll be interesting to know, to see whether it's actually familiar when you do hear it. But what a yeah. beautiful story. And and yeah, I, I'm looking forward to sort of getting to know the music. It sounds like it's uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, I love that on your own site, there are sections um, about script writing and web copy and articles. And there's a great blog with with all sorts of um, features around creative content. And there's often a, a box that says, if I could give you one tip, you know, when you're public speaking, stand up as if you're speaking to one person or, you know, some brilliant, yeah. brilliant advice there. So. What's the one piece of wisdom or advice that you'd love to share here, Fiona? Well, you must be psychic because it is about writing. I want to bring it back to writing and I want to offer up a piece of advice that I once read and and I loved, which is write the book that you would love to read. Because I think one of the biggest problems that we have as writers is ourselves. We form these imaginary editors and, and readers in our heads 
And we write to impress other people using all of our best words and all of our, you know, most brilliant, most imaginative metaphors. And we all do it, including me. Um, and, and we try and mimic other writers and we do all of these things and we aren't always brave enough or honest enough. But I think the truth is we have to write stuff that we genuinely enjoy and that we would genuinely read for enjoyment for ourselves. Um, and there are so many writing tips and thank you for mentioning the tips on the website. Um, there's lots and lots and I could talk about writing um, as well as succession for the entire podcast and maybe I should have done, but um, you know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> thinking about it. Um, but anyway, um, I like the direction we went in, but I think that's a good one. Write the book that you would love to read. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a challenge in itself, isn't it? Just to sit down and think, what do I love reading? Why? What is it about that? that is just so captivating you know when you just mm. can't put, put a book down mm. and, and start as that as your source point I think yes. that's really really great advice and even in the sort of non-fiction space I would still say that's true you know instead of perhaps appearing as a guru bring a bit of vulnerability into it and oh, yeah. tell the stories behind how you got to this process you know how many failures there were to get to a, a success yeah. for example or yeah yeah, fabulous, fabulous advice. So for anyone who's been listening and is interested in following up on, you know, whether it's ghostwriting or you, you run writing workshops, you do editing, you know, there's everything that's, I love the, the tagline, I write words and I write words, as in <laughs> two different spellings that can give you a different syntax. Where's the best place to, to find you, Fee? Yeah, you could look on my website, Fiona Mattesini. I think I'm a .co.uk. Yeah, I am. Um, and you mentioned Instagram. I'm really crap with Instagram, actually. I need to um, update it. But at Fiona Mattesini, um, you can find me there. Um, Great. So yeah. people can just reach out to you through a contact page on the website. Yes. Yeah. If they've, yeah. If they've got any editing, um, any anything to do with writing, really, I think mm -hmm. you pretty much turn your hand to, even if they have a song they want to be co-written, perhaps, that might be the please thing. yeah um, absolutely well there'll be links to all of that in the show notes of course and it just remains to say thank you so much for joining me i knew this conversation was going to be a fun one yeah again i'd love to say thank you for um for just sharing that that insight into career paths and yeah bringing how you can bring just those those creative forces into a really functioning career that that actually pays the bills it's um it's been amazing to spend some time with you so thanks for joining me thank you so much kat and also um congratulations on an amazing terrific podcast so oh, thank you that's very kind of you very kind of you let's catch up again soon definitely take care bye Thanks again so much to Fiona for joining me. I totally loved that conversation and the insight she shared around writing. There's so much more we could have dug into and perhaps we need to revisit it and have her on again sometime soon. We're here now in mid-December with the season of giving really being upon us. And it's a time when my thoughts go immediately to those who don't have a home or anyone to turn to. The team at the Charity Crisis are doing what they can to reach as many people as possible this year. You can donate by going over to crisis.org.uk and there'll be links to that in the show notes 
any donation is welcome, but £29 can help give someone who needs it food, advice, companionship, and the vital help they need to get to take the first steps out of homelessness. Your act of kindness here could make a life-changing difference for someone who has nowhere to call home this Christmas. Your gift today will definitely help another person at a very critical time. Thanks again for joining me and for making such a difference and warm wishes for a very happy Christmas. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.